Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast, recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. This episode's speaker is Greg Lukianoff, president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Greg spoke about notable cases of First Amendment violations on campus and how FIRE was able to fight back. So get some pesto on your bagel and take a sip of your espresso because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. outed so quickly um i was like this is pretty this is like the one audience i wouldn't tell that because because they're like oh my god that means he's a devil and it's like actually on this i'm consistently on your guys side um you know i what's that (laughs) you could definitely smell the sulfur and it is funny it's been funny watching how different constituencies react to the title of the book because liberals get really mad that it's that it's oh sorry that it's coddling of the american mind they think that they think the coddling word is 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 offensive Uh, meanwhile conservatives get mad that part of the title is how good intentions and bad ideas um i was on the dennis prager show and he got really bent out of shape about this and i'm like dennis in general, people don't actually say, in the name of evil, follow me. <laughs> Generally, people think they're doing the right thing, even, unfortunately, when they're doing evil. So, um, you know, freedom of speech is something that I'm very passionate about, but it can very easily be taken for granted in, in the United States. And, and the thing that I always try to really emphasize when I talk to students is that there's nothing normal about it. Um, it's really counterintuitive to actually be told, uh, by the way, don't make your enemies drink hemlock, don't crucify them, don't chop off their heads, don't set them on fire. Um, all of these things is the way we typically and historically deal with people who disagree with us passionately. <laughs> um, and it was really quite remarkable to have a system by which we said, you know what, I'm not just going to not kill people <laughs> I disagree with. I'm going to listen to them. And there's a possibility, and, and, and they may be right. So I've always found it kind of remarkable um, that almost as soon as there was an ability to talk about freedom of speech on a mass scale, um, the, the invention of the pr- printing press, um, you start having people advocating uh, for for freedom of speech. So like people say, well, it wasn't until the 17th century. It's like, when exactly were they going to advocate for it before the printing press? <laughs> Everything was, you know, command economy, essentially. And so Arapagitica, you know, it, it, uh, if you haven't read it, you know, I teach it when I, when I, I, I teach law um, at, at George Mason some, some years. Um, and uh, I always open with, with, with this book because it's amazing how many of the arguments that we still make to this day actually come, you know, from, from John Milton back, way back in 1644. Um, but the law of uh, the First Amendment is actually even younger uh, than the concept of the First Amendment. And it comes as a surprise oftentimes to people uh, that the First Amendment, um, it wasn't strongly enforced, uh, actually it was basically toothless. Um, until about 1925, um, which comes as a surprise even to people who you know who know a fair amount about um, constitutional history. 
this is one of my favorite cases, um, Barnett. It's actually about whether or not you're, you can make um, students uh, stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, I, I didn't intentionally put this in, in here for that reason. Um, but it's about Jehovah's Witnesses kids um, saying, listen, this is, this is, um, uh, this is idolatry as far, as far as we're concerned. And in the middle of World War II, the Supreme Court basically said, listen, we don't make people do this. This is not who we are. That's what the bad guys do. And there's this wonderful quote that some of you have heard. Um, if there's any fixed star, you can read it. You, you can read it right there. Um, but the quote that I love the most is just the very simple and clarifying. It's kind of like the Zen Cohen kind of slap you in the face with the truth of it. Um, freedom to differ is not limited to things that do not matter much. Um, nice and clear. Um, and it's something that, you, you know, on campuses, I feel like I have to say over and over again. Um, so, and I, I love this quote, and I, I use it whenever I speak on campus as well, um, and it's, a, it's part of a much larger quote uh, for the first case in which uh, the Supreme Court found a right to academic freedom as part of the First Amendment, um, and teachers and students must always remain free to inquire, to study, and to evaluate, to gain new maturity and understanding, otherwise our civilization will stagnate and die. Little, little over the top. I actually think that we'd probably muddle through somehow um, without uh, uh, universities, uh, but I do think that we would uh, uh, probably not innovate quite as much. So now that's prehistory, essentially. Um, I, I'm curious, how many people know about this book? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of it. Okay, so what, back in great. Uh, so back in 1998, um, uh, Harvey Silverglate, who was a defense lawyer um, in Cambridge, uh, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Alan Kors, who is a professor at University of Pennsylvania. Also, if you've ever listened to the teaching, any ever listened to the teaching company, um, the great courses. You're, yeah, great. You really should because his um, he's a, one of the world's leading experts on Voltaire and the Enlightenment. Um, and they wrote this book back in 1998 called The Shadow University, talking about what I'd call probably like the first great age of political correctness, um, the late 80s to early 90s on campus, um, and, and warning about what was uh, happening and what was to come. Uh, Harvey and Alan like to, you know, particularly Harvey likes to say, well, you know, we thought we'd, you know, write this expose and, and people would be shocked and this would get fixed. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's not really what happened. Um, the next year, they ended up founding FIRE uh, because rather than fixing the situation, what it actually led to was thousands of requests from students and faculty all over the country saying, oh my God, this is, this is, this is happening to me. Can you help? Um, I joined FIRE uh, back in 2001. Um, and uh, so I, I talk about this as being sort of prehistory, but all I really mean is uh, history prior to my actually having firsthand experience with it. So I, 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 um, I was a weird law student. I went to law school specifically to do First Amendment law. I took every class that my law school offered on First Amendment. When I ran out of classes um, that, my, uh, that my law school had on First Amendment, I did six credits of, of independent study on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. <laughs> I was definitely laughed at a little bit for putting all my eggs in one basket because First Amendment jobs are relatively hard to find. Um, but Har Harvey Silverglade came out and essentially found me when I was living out in San Francisco um, and brought me to Philadelphia, where the headquarters of, of FIRE is to this day, um, to uh, fight for free speech on campus. And I have to say, even though this was kind of off people's radar, not your radar, um, but most people kind of thought that the sort of great age of, of censorship on campus had largely ended in 2001. 
And uh, I'm, you know, I'm here to say I was shocked, even in 2001, which was comparatively a better time for free speech on campus, that how easy it was to get in trouble for what you say on campus. This is Modesto Junior College in uh, 2013. Um, so, what, so the first phase uh, and what dominated my experience for my uh, entire time at FIRE prior to uh, pretty recently um, is the fact uh, that the people who were really doing the censoring weren't actually students. Um, for most of my career, the people who were the bad actors on campus were the bureaucrats, the, the, the ever-expanding army of, of administrators who actually enforce um, uh, vague and broad speech codes, for example. And this is a, you know, a classic case that um, is, once again, just like what happened with Hayden, um, really made important by the fact that simply the student in this question got it on video. Um, but this is a student, he's a really nice, uh, nice student. Um, he, he was a Gulf War vet, um, and he was at Modesto Junior College in California, a public college bound by the First Amendment. And he's trying to hand out constitutions on Constitution Day. <laughs> Uh, September 17th, for those, those of you who don't remember. Um, and he's trying to hand out constitutions on Constitution Day. And he asked one of his friends videotape this. And he's like, listen, my, my campus is so repressive. I bet I can't hand out constitutions on Constitution Day. And this video, within 10 minutes, the, uh, this um, campus police officer, not a real police officer, campus police officer comes up to him and starts explaining, you can't do that. <laughs> and, um, and he starts giving all these different reasons for why he, he can't do it. And he's like, I'm literally holding the First Amendment in my hand right, <laughs> right now. Um, and the, the, this uh, picture right here is actually him being sent to an administrator who then explained to him that he couldn't exercise his free speech rights on campus because he hadn't signed up to use the free speech zone. Um, and this is her looking through a binder to figure out if the free speech zone was free that day. And then explaining kind of like, well, you know, I know you want to celebrate Constitution Day, but how about you celebrate it in October? <laughs> which is surely not good enough. And the amazing thing about this lawsuit, and we, we, we were mostly not a litigation organization, um, we, but we did sue in this case, was how much Modesto Junior College acted like they were the real victims here, <laughs> which is just remarkable how often we run into that. So this is a, um, probably one of the more famous cases we have at, at, at FIRE. Um, this is a, a, a case in which a student at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, uh, kind of a mouthful, um, was found guilty of racial harassment without even a hearing because he was reading this book. Now, this is a book, obviously, called Notre Dame versus the Klan. It's about when the Nazis, not the Nazis, when the KKK uh, marched on Notre Dame in the 1920s. I have to explain to students who don't know their history, which is unfortunately most students, um, that the Klan also was anti-Catholic, so marching on a Catholic school you know, in the 20s <laughs> made, made sense, I guess. And this, is a, and this is a book uh, that, ironically, is a, a celebration of the fact that, that uh, Notre Dame students defeated the KKK in a street battle in the 1920s. Like, so it's this joyously anti-Klan book. Now, I have to explain that the fact that it's you know, anti-racist doesn't make it any more or less uh, protected. It just makes it ironic that the student got in trouble for, for, for reading it. Um, and this was a case where just two um, employees complained because, clearly, this is threatening. Um, because it has a picture of a rally, a Klan rally, related to the March on Notre Dame, of course, um, and it has the word Klan on the cover. Um, this student was found uh, guilty of racial harassment without a hearing when he actually asked for help at, at his university. Uh, he was told, just don't bother, you know, like, just keep your head down. You know, it's basically like it's fine to have on your, um, on your transcript that you are a racial harasser. <laughs> 
Um, and that wasn't good enough for us, uh, so we, we, we fought this case many years ago. Um, oh yeah, and this is a case that, that, that was very early in my career. So this is a student, he lived, um, at, uh, he, he was going to University of New Hampshire. Uh, he lived on the seventh floor of his dormitory, and he was really annoyed that students below the seventh floor would take, a, take the elevator, not just up one floor, um, but also down one floor. <laughs> He thought that was incredibly lazy, so he, he was, and he was really exercised about it. So he made this poster saying that, you know, uh, nine out of ten freshman girls gain 15 pounds. Um, but there's something you can do about that. Take the stairs if you live below the uh, fifth floor. And what's funny about this is, yeah, you know, and this kid had the book thrown at him. Like the, the, he was put on probation. He was kicked out of the dormitory. This guy had to live out of his car in New Hampshire uh, in November. Um, it's submitted to mandatory psychological counseling, which I'm always like, what was he supposed to talk to the shrink about? You know, it's like, I thought it was funny. You know, um, and I'm really mad that people aren't taking the, are taking the elevator down one floor. He was um, assigned to read like 12 books to, to issue a public apology. It just goes on and on and on. Um, and what's amazing about this is this is so clearly protected speech. There's no question about whether this is protected speech. But I definitely have had people who, uh, students who have read my work and saying that they really had a hard time with this case because, you know, this is fat shaming and that's basically, that's, that, that can't, that, that, that's not protected. And it's like, oh boy, um, we have a lot of work to do if people are actually wondering if this is protected speech. Um, so speech codes. Uh, ho hopefully, you, you, uh, I assume you've actually heard about campus speech codes. Uh, there is a popular misconception that these things came into existence in the late 1980s and, and early 90s, and then uh, were basically defeated in court. Uh, all that's actually true. There were about five lawsuits against campus speech codes, which by all means should have actually stopped the, the rise of speech codes. But by the time I started in uh, 2001, there were actually more speech codes um, on campus than there had had been even in 1995 when supposedly the last speech code on campus was defeated at Stanford, my alma mater. Um, and, that, and actually this is one of the things that people missed was that these codes just kept on going. So a good example that's currently current policy is University of West Alabama uh, bans harsh text messages or emails. <laughs> yeah, um, when I talk to students about this, and students kind of don't get yeah, a, a lot of times why this is unconstitutional. It's like, okay, that's concerning. Um, but you do understand that this is vague and broad and that any single, every single one of you could be found guilty for violating such an arbitrary policy. And a lot of times they still don't get it, um, which is a shame. Um, and of course, the, uh, a classic, the use of derogatory names, inconsiderate jokes, and inappropriately directed laughter. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> Got to be careful there. Now, it says that you, Drexel University. Now, what, what, what's remarkable here is that this code was actually originally a part of University of Connecticut speech code in the late 1980s. It was defeated in court in 1991, unfortunately in an unpublished opinion, and I'm very critical of unpublished opinions. Um, but it was also laughed at. Um, in the court of public opinion at the time because it's ridiculous. Um, you know, I, and I, I talked to, to students today, I have to explain, you do know that like an administrator can easily find you guilty of this even if you didn't even laugh inappropriately. Um, they don't, again, um, unfortunately this kind of goes over their heads. Um, but what's amazing about this is even after being defeated in court, this code ended up um, verbatim at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, and the only way I can figure this, this must have happened 
um, was by someone, you know, Googling most ridiculously unconstitutional code ever and just dropping it into, into their policies. Um, so we, we had to defeat it uh, at, at Drexel University, even though this had been defeated, you know, 15 years before. Unfortunately, copying codes is really common, um, and I've seen it all, all over the country. So I'm, I'm going to come back to this, but when, I, so when we first started publishing our findings on speech codes, we ended up with about 75% of universities having what we would call red light speech codes. What is a red light speech code? Uh, like the codes you just saw. Um, when I have to explain it sort of in lay terms, I just say laughably unconstitutional codes. Um, and so back in 2007, we, about 75% of these had these. And by the way, the, these have uh, stood up to legal, um, uh, to legal scrutiny because Every time we've uh, challenged, or anybody else has challenged, a red light speech code, it is either that we deem a red light, it's either been defeated um, or produced an opinion that says this is unconstitutional, or withdrawn by the university because they know they're not going to be able to win in court on it. So free speech zones, you might have heard of these. Um, this is <laughs> the famous uh, Texas Tech University free speech gazebo. Uh, tw 20 feet wide of freedom for all 28,000 students at the university. Um, this is the famous free speech swamp at University of Hawaii that I literally would not go down into because I was afraid I'd be electrocuted. Um, this is, the, the, up there, is the free speech um, uh, zone at University of Cincinnati, um, which we challenged with students from Young Americans for Liberty uh, in, in 2012 and got that defeated. And in the top left corner right there, that is the sad little free speech zone at Blinn uh, College um, in, in Texas. And I always have to explain, it's not even everything in that picture. It's just those two sad little squares on either side of that bulletin board. Um, this was a student who wanted to protest for Second Amendment rights in Texas and was told that she had to limit her, her speech to the free speech zone, which I believe they also told her, sorry, was not available that day. Um, so free speech zones are pretty, were pretty common, but uh, after years of fighting this, we've actually had a lot of success in, um, in, in beating them back. So phase two, um, this is the Department of Education really stepping up their efforts. Uh, for most of my career, uh, the Department of Education was kind of a boogeyman. And what I mean by that is that campuses would very conveniently explain no, 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 we're not writing the speech code. The Department of Education is requiring us to have the speech code. And this was nicely addressed in 2003 by a letter from the Department of Education saying, listen, First Amendment guys, like we can't, the Department of Education can't make you pass a speech code that, is, that violates the First Amendment. That's beyond our power even as the Department of Education. Um, but unfortunately, in 2011, uh, that's when you first see the, uh, what, what's known sort of uh, publicly as, as the DCL, the Dear Colleague Letter. Now, every letter that, you, that the Department of Education sends to every university in the country is, is known as a DCL, so it makes it a little bit confusing for um, those of us who practice this. But the 2011 DCL is the one where they reduced the uh, standard of evidence for students accused of harassment and assault on campus. And this is something that we fought for years, Honestly, we, and we mobilized everyone as much as we could, but we thought we'd never win on this. And thankfully, um, under, un, under Betsy DeVos, they've actually uh, got, uh, they've um, uh, re retracted the 2011 letter. Unfortunately, they haven't been quite so clear um, when it comes to the 2013 uh, blueprint, uh, which was one of the la most laughably broad speech codes I'd ever heard of, where they simply banned speech on the basis of being um, sexual speech that was unwelcome. Um, that was it. And they, and they got rid of 
um, the idea that it needed to be both subjectively offensive and would be offensive to an average person. So they, and explicitly getting rid of a reasonable person standard is an amazing thing to read because it's kind of like, so if you just subjectively feel that something is unwelcome, it's now literally a federal crime. Um, so we fought this tooth and nail. Um, and just to, you know, and there, I have so many examples of this. Uh, and what's heartbreaking about it is time and time again, when professors are accused of harassment for saying things that are clearly protected, they're not willing to go forward and fight, um, even though they're going to win if they actually go in front of a court. Um, that's why I'm thankful to Laura Kipnis. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. Uh, Laura Kipnis is a feminist professor um, at uh, Northwestern University. She published something in uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education saying Title IX has been um, warped out of all uh, all understanding, and that um, that essentially like it's chilling speech. People are getting in trouble for even what they say, and it's limiting due process on campus. And for writing an article claiming that Title IX went too far, she was investigated under Title IX at Northwestern University. Um, so for 72 days, um, she was not allowed to know who was accusing her. She wasn't allowed to take notes. She was told that she couldn't talk to an attorney. Um, and, this is, and this is something that the rest of the world isn't used to hearing about. And meanwhile, I, this is where I live. I hear this happening to, student, uh, to uh, students and professors, particularly professors, quite often. Um, and they're really told that they have no rights, they can't get any help for anything, they can't really know what they're charged with. And very much to Laura Kipnis's credit, um, she, after 72 days of complying exactly with, with the letter of what they were saying, she published an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education talking about her um, Kafkaesque treatment. Now, Kafka gets thrown around pretty lightly <laughs> in my experience, but in this case, it really was Kafkaesque. And unsurprisingly, and this is something that Fire has seen in literally, I guess at this point, probably thousands of cases, certainly hundreds, um, that if you're willing to fight in public, you tend to win. In her case, you know, particularly ridiculous. Um, so there is a little uh, codicil at the end of this. Um, she, she wrote, a, after this whole kerfuffle happened, and she started looking into how bad the Title IX apparatus was at so many colleges and how easy it was to be accused under it and how few rights it had if you were, um, she wrote a book called Unwanted Advances, which I recommend to everybody. It's brilliant. It's really good writing, too. Um, she wrote a book about her, uh, about the repressive nature of Title IX, um, and then was investigated again by Northwestern University by the Title IX office for writing a book about Title IX. It becomes like this weird Escher painting, that, 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 that just kind of like infinitely recursive. It's just very, it, you know, it's an amazing story and very sad story. And that's just one example. So now uh, we're in sort of like the modern age. And uh, I always talk about how, and I know that, that it's, un, it's not that it's unheard of for students to be against freedom of speech. Um, definitely students played a very important role in the first great age of, of political correctness in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. There were definitely you know, students who said they were part of the free speech movement who tried to get speakers shut down almost immediately thereafter. Um, but for most of my experience, the students were actually pretty good. 
They understood, you know, everything from offensive professors to offensive comedians. They, they got it uh, much better uh, than administrators, certainly, and oftentimes better than professors. And seemingly overnight in 2013-2014, you start having a really dramatic shift where um, students were suddenly kind of living up to some of the uh, sort of illiberal stereotypes that people had of them. This is when you first start hearing about trigger warnings, about microaggression policies, about disinvitations, for example. And so I wrote a book um, in 2014, a very short book. Um, if you want to read anything I, I wrote, this is the easiest one. Um, it's only about 9,000 words. Uh, but I wrote it very quickly, and it's called Freedom From Speech, which I think was essentially the attitude that, that I saw arising on campus, that essentially really the freedom that students thought they had was from speech that they really didn't like. Um, and, uh, th and this began really dramatically in 2013. This is a graph that we have of disinvitations um, about how um, students were increasingly demanding that speakers, particularly conservative speakers, be disinvited from campus. Now, interestingly, and somewhat unsurprisingly probably to LI, um, that the media really started to notice disinvitations, though. Now, Condoleezza Rice, the attempt to disinvite Condoleezza Rice got a lot of attention, um, and this happened at Rutgers. And the students, by the way, succeeded, because Condoleezza Rice uh, withdrew her name from being a, um, uh, a commencement speaker at, at Rutgers. Um, but the media really started to notice this when it was the chancellor of Berkeley <laughs> was, there was an attempt to get him disinvited from Smith, uh, uh, from Smith College, and when it was the, um, the head, uh, Christine Lagarde, the head of the Inter International Monetary Fund. Actually, no, she was Smith, um, and the, I think the other, the other one was Haverford. But when it started being actually people that uh, you could identify as political liberals being disinvited because they weren't pure enough. That's when the media really started to notice. This big, those two stars up there, um, that's just for Milo Yiannopoulos right there. Um, like, uh, uh, and the reason why we didn't uh, draw the line is we wanted to be clear that, that uh, you know, we don't want uh, people to think it's, we wanted to be very clear that even without him, it's still, it's still a major spike. Um, now, the problem with trying to see what the, the climate on campus is like um, for free speech, uh, just by looking at disinvitations, though, has a fundamental problem. You have to have been invited in the first place. Uh, and there was a study that Henry Enten looked at. Um, this is a guy who writes for Vox, and he said, uh, at the same time this was all happening, at the top 30 schools in the country, not a single one um, had invited, uh, as, as a commencement speaker, anybody who would be conservative or even a Republican. Um, so, you know, this is all the more remarkable given how few, and, and the, the blue line there are, uh, are disinvitations coming from the left, and the red line there are dis disinvitations coming from the right. So UCLA examples of microaggressions. Uh, microaggressions actually, and I, I always like to give this caveat, I actually think microaggressions are an incredibly interesting topic for academic study. Um, the ways in which we, uh, for those of you who don't know what they mean, it means ways that we sort of unintentionally slight each other, um, usually across lines of like race and sex. You know, my father, my mother is British, my father is Russian, my childhood was one long microaggression against each other. Um, so I think this is interesting, but as soon as you start making this into speech codes, um, the administrators have, unsurprisingly, a tendency to make these things just opinions that they, or, or statements they don't like. So listed, and to this day, at, um, at, uh, in the UC system as examples of microaggressions, and remember, you know, if you take the term literally, they're, they're tiny uh, acts of violence against uh, oppressed people. Um, and they included things like, America is the land of opportunity. 
I believe the most qualified, per qualified person should get the job. America is a melting pot. Affirmative action is racist. Uh, where are you from or where were you born? Um, you know, all of these things were, were listed as microaggressions. Uh, pretty expansive um, and uh, laughably unconstitutional if enforced as, as a speech code. Uh, but but uh, but a new a new rationale that even though the concept of microaggressions was something that a professor came up with in the 1970s, it was only only around now that they started becoming a really popular idea on campus. Uh, and how many people know about this case? Um, yeah, everybody in this room should read about the John McAdams case. It's really quite remarkable. Um, and a lot of the cases y y f have a little bit of, that, that I see, they have a little bit of a surprise in them, that they, that, that, that they don't exactly follow the sort of uh, uh, political correctness run amok typical pattern. And in this case, it's a professor at Marquette University, um, which is nominally a Catholic university in Wisconsin. And his, he ran a blog where one of his major arguments was essentially, uh, yeah, Catholic university, and I'm a Catholic, and I'm afraid of saying anything that's actually Catholic at my Catholic university. And so he wrote, a, uh, he wrote an article. He, he had a student bring to him a tape recording of a discussion with a, a, a junior assistant a, a professor in training saying that in their debate class at Marquette University, they couldn't cover gay marriage um, and because it would be homophobic and offensive to students. These are quotes from the professor here. And all John McAdams did was report this. Um, he reported this on his blog. It got a lot of attention, um, and it led to, and you know, and this is something that is, is not helpful, is that sometimes people on the internet will start sending you know, nasty emails like at the university, which then they can say, okay, now we're responding to threats you know, from people. But amazingly, what this led to was John McAdams, who all he did was published something that was actually true and verifiable, was the one who ended up getting fired at Marquette University. And this is a tenured professor. That's pretty remarkable um, that, that, a fire, that they fired a tenured professor. Now, this is also at a, at a private college. Fire's position on private colleges is that they don't have to promise freedom of speech, but if they do, they have to live up to it. And this, that, that principle was, uh, we think that's morally true no matter what, even if it's not vindicated in a court of law. But in this case, um, after this got to an appellate court, they said, listen, you guys promised freedom of speech, and like this is not even close. So uh, I think it was um, just last uh, fall that the, the court ordered that John McAdams had to be unfired um, and had to be returned to campus, um, which was a, a nice thing to see. A lot of these cases, even when they end um, in a positive finding for a, a professor or student, some, a lot of times, unfortunately, they mean that the professor doesn't want to go back to his old institution, un, unsurprisingly. I'm sure that there was a lot of awkward uh, conversations after John McAdams got back to, to Marquette. So uh, phase four, um, and I talk about these all as, as different phases in my career. And as you can see, the time interval between the different phases is getting shorter and shorter. So I think things are you know, worse on campus than, than I've seen them in, in, in my career. Maybe a little better than they were a year ago, um, but, you know, unfortunately, just wait. So the 2015 pr uh, protests were definitely um, unlike I'd seen in my career. Um, I open up with the Argus. Um, this was an example where a uh, student newspaper uh, at Wesleyan University uh, ran a, an op-ed uh, where a, um, uh, the author was critical of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And in, in terms that would be, could have easily be published in USA Today, um, 
and the uh, students w tried to get the newspaper defunded. Um, and it was really, you know, really aggressive attack on this uh, on the student newspaper. The, stu the, the student government um, agreed to a huge cut in their funding. Now, this is also a good story because it um, outside the the pressure from outside groups and uh, some people stepping forward to say, "Listen, I will fund the Argus um, in, uh, in this situation." Really made a difference. But this case went on for probably a good year at, at Wesleyan University. Now, the Argus is now. Uh, fine, but the idea that they even had to go through that for publishing an article, you know, the, the correct response to an article you don't like is to write an article you, that you do like or, or response. But in this case, the students didn't, didn't seem to understand this, and um, you probably, how many people, does this look familiar to? Does anybody know who took the video in, in, in this? Yep. What's that? No. Uh, me. <laughs> um, my my, my co-author was not there at the time. I was, and what's funny is people think this is a conspiracy. So if you don't know, this is the video um, in which Nicholas Christakis, a professor at Yale, is you know being shouted at for being disgusting and that, that, that you should not, uh, um, you should be kicked out of the school and what are you doing working here um, by a, a group of angry students who are mad that his wife, who was also a, a master at Silliman College, which is a residential college at Yale, um, had written an email saying um, when, uh, when a department at Yale actually had sent out something um, where a student-run student department saying you should be sensitive about what Halloween costumes you wear um, to not be offensive, uh, Eric Rosakis, I think quite correctly, wrote, is it really Yale's job to be policing the Halloween costumes of our students? Um, isn't it something that they should be able to figure out on their own? Isn't this um, compromising their autonomy? And what's remarkable about this, and I always urge people to read the actual original letter that Erica Christakis wrote, because it's in very thoughtful. It's not, it's, it's not some you know, red meat screed. It's actually her saying there's lots of principled reasons for not doing this. And this got treated, and, ha and I've watched actually a uh, Yale professor talk about this as if what Erica Christagas had written was, well, she was he was urging people to go out and dress up in blackface. It's like, that is absolutely irresponsible for you, for, for you to be saying that. And, but students acted like that's exactly what um, uh, Erica had done. And this is her husband, Nicholas Christagas, who, by the way, is an absolutely cutting edge, brilliant professor. Um, being surrounded by students, being told, uh, and, he, and he has the courage to actually go out there and try to talk to them in, in, the, in the best traditions of, of freedom of speech. Um, and I videotaped this, and I, I wouldn't normally put something like this up on the internet, but I was at Yale, and I was told by a student that the student uh, newspaper at Yale was planning to um, use selective cuts from the video, because by the way, like a dozen people were, were videotaping this, and I was the only one who put up a uh, video of it. Um, we're saying that they were planning to edit the video to make um, Professor to make Nicholas Kristakis look bad, and so I'm like, okay, I have to publish this now. Like, I have to publish all and the entirety of these videos because it has to be really clear to people that not only did Nicholas Kristakis not um, lose it, he act he showed incredible restraint. So if you if you get a chance to watch these videos. Um, watch them. It was definitely, and I, and now there's a conspiracy theory at Yale. It's like, what was Greg Lukianoff doing in Silliman College at the time of this incident? And it's like, honestly, I was there to give a speech about freedom of speech at Yale, <laughs> which I'd been invited the previous spring by Erica and, and Nicholas Christakis to address their students at Silliman College. So I was actually staying at Silliman College. Like, what legal right did he have to be there? I'm like, I was a guest. Um, 
So yeah, really remarkable and very sad case uh, that I think everyone should know about. The most worrisome phase that I've seen um, is uh, violence um, on campus. This is all shots from the, uh, un uh, at the Berkeley case. If you read, um, this is the Milo Yiannopoulos situation. Um, if you read my, my book, Coddling the American Mind, which I wrote with uh, John Haidt, we do a lot of original reporting on this. My um, uh, chief researcher, Pamela Paretsky, actually did a lot of interviews. Like, so there's original reporting regarding the, 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 the Berkeley riots. And as bad as I knew they were, um, they were much worse than I even thought. And the students in that case are extremely lucky, and the protesters are extremely lucky that nobody got killed. Um, and this, because it included students being um, uh, hit over the head with a, um, with a metal flagpole. This is like a 23-year-old female student being whacked across the face. Um, and her husband, you know, ha having the flagpole brought right down his head, huge pool of blood on the ground. And it's like, yeah, this was, you are, it's just luck that nobody died during this. Um, so it was really much worse than I imagined. And, you know, fire initially, we were like, okay, we can understand that Berkeley might have felt um, overwhelmed uh, that night because it definitely was a much bigger reaction than we'd ever seen by orders of magnitude um, from university students. Uh, but that doesn't excuse Berkeley uh, not arresting anybody afterwards when there was so much video evidence of, of uh, protesters and students actually physically assaulting. And that's the thing, and, and you can't have tolerance for this. You can't, you, and, I, and people are like, well, you know, it's just like the students were engaged in like extreme free speech. And I'm like, no, they were engaged in the opposite of free speech. <laughs> so, and what we t said right from the beginning is this is gonna lead to a chain of events in which uh, more and more people get hurt. And unfortunately, although I actually had seen it, uh, this die down a little bit in the past year, unfortunately we got to see what happened to Hayden, um, which is absolutely horrifying. And this is, but at the same time, completely predictable. As soon as you actually um, tell an angry mob, it's like, okay, listen, we will give in to all of your demands, um, but don't do it again. They're gonna do it again. And this kept on happening at, at, at protests in the, t in the town of Berkeley for months afterwards. So, of course, these are incidents all across the country. You know, I, I'm sure you know about Charles Murray at Middlebury, um, that uh, Allison Stanger uh, was the one who got a concussion, um, Heather McDonald. Uh, th 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 this, was, this was 2017, and, and uh, what we were seeing in the fall of 2017 was really disturbing. Um, I realize I'm running over time. Outrage mob, um, this, to be clear, liberals do get in trouble uh, in, in cases here. Uh, this was a professor who went on Tucker Carlson's show to defend a party she didn't attend that was a Black Lives Matter party that was for black students at a school that she didn't teach at. <laughs> but she went on, she's like, I'll argue with Tucker Carlson on, uh, on uh, Fox News. And she was fired uh, by her university, claiming that they received such a torrent of, of hate mail that they had, to, they had no choice but to, but to fire because they couldn't guarantee her safety. Um, so it's you know, important to understand, stand up for the free speech rights of even people that you passionately disagree with. Um, we talk about this case actually a lot in, in Coddling the American Mind as well. Um, so here's, here's the bottom line. It's all happening at the same time. All of these trends that I'm talking about, to be very clear, with the exception of the Department of Education, which has largely receded because a lot of these policies are being undone, all of these trends I'm talking about are still happening. It's not as if administrators are good on free speech. It's not as if, unfortunately, students are good on it. It's, um, and unfortunately, we're still seeing incidents of violence. So that's how you end up with cases like the Brett Weinstein case at Evergreen State University. Again, 
much worse than I thought. Um, and, a, and a situation in which the university president was essentially on the sides of, of uh, angry students who wanted to get, get a professor fired for saying something eminently reasonable. So coddling the American mind, I realize I'm ac I am actually running out of time. Um, the, uh, some of these stories I just like to, t I just like to tell because um, they're kind of horrifying. Basically, the argument we made in the original article was that we were teaching a generation of students not just uh, bad habits for freedom of speech, but we were teaching them the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. So back in 2014, when I first proposed this article to Haidt, um, we were saying, like, this is going to result in an increase in anxiety and depression on campus. This is not just bad for free speech, this is bad for mental health. And we thought we'd see a slight increase, you know? And it was terrifying how bad the increase was. Um, the uh, the uh, depressive rate for uh, girls in particular has skyrocketed. Self-reports of, of anxiety and depression for college students, it's tripled on some, tripled on, on some campuses. Um, it's particularly affecting girls for reasons that I'm happy to explain and we explain in the book. Um, number one concerns uh, for students' anxiety and depression, um, according to a lot of studies. Uh, and of course, when people see this, they want to debunk it, even though we, have, we, we, we cite seven different studies. Um, but in this case, we're like, okay, uh, I know you can, you, you can argue that basically we just changed the definition of anxiety and depression and what are self-reports anyway, but unfortunately, the trend is exactly matched in the increase in suicide rates uh, among young women, which was probably the most upsetting thing that we found out uh, when working on this. And when you look at the difference between 2008 and today, the, the suicide rate for girls has doubled. So something very wrong is going on, and I think... Uh, and we ex explain a lot of this in Coddling the American Mind, where we think this is coming from. Now, I want to give you know, some good news. The uh, rate of speech codes has actually gone down thanks to 70-plus lawsuits um, against speech codes uh, over, over the past uh, 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 20 years at this point. Um, and so a dramatic increase, uh, decrease down. So there, uh, you shouldn't get pessimistic. This, this latest round of illiberalism on campus is actually relatively new. So... Uh, Solutions part one, uh, go, to the uh, go to our website, uh, see what, uh, when it comes to either your alma mater or a school that you're planning to send one of your kids or your grandkids, um, definitely check them out in advance. Um, we have a speech code rating for 450 of the top schools in the country. Um, see what the 10, what, we do an annual 10 worst schools for free speech, check that out for sure. That's definitely uh, some of the most traumatic stuff we see. See if they adopt adopted the Chicago Statement on Academic Freedom and Free Speech, see what their due process ratings are at school, and if you're dissatisfied, contact us or FIRE. Um, solutions part two, don't be pessimistic, uh, form coalitions, demand that high schools teach about freedom of speech, and demand that your college teaches about free speech and orientation. Now, professors themselves are getting frustrated by this because they're realizing, where, whatever their political stripes are, that they can be the ones who end up getting fired. So. Um, there's a, there's a movement for this. We just got to keep pushing when we have some momentum. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang, with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.